Last Sunday, we began our series through the Gospel of Mark, and we asked a few questions as kind of uh, steps on the way to answering a bigger question, which is, who is Jesus? There are a few questions in life more important than that question, who is Jesus? And in a way, as we work through the Gospel of Mark, we're going to be asking that question every single week, who is Jesus? Today, I want to tighten that lens in a little bit as we ask that question by asking other critical questions as we look at uh, the next portion of Mark chapter 1, uh, verses 14 through 20 this morning. Uh, would you turn there in your Bibles uh, now? But as we look at this passage, we're going to be considering how Jesus' public ministry begins, and he gives the people something to listen to, and he gives them something to do. So this morning, I want you to ask, what is Jesus' message? And what is the right response to Jesus? He's given us something to hear, to listen to, and something to do. And so what is his message? And what is the right response to that message? What is the right response to Jesus? These questions are basic Christianity, but basic Christianity that we never outgrow. It's a lesson for what it means to be a disciple. At its very core, it's a lesson of what it means to be a Christian. And so if you are truly a Christian, you are a disciple of Jesus. You always will be a disciple of Jesus, and you will never outgrow the responsibility of making disciples of Jesus. And so although this passage may feel elementary or basic, it's incredibly important. And I have personally found it deeply challenging this week, and I think you will too. Boys and girls, uh, there aren't many clearer passages that you can listen to uh, that so clearly answer the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? A lot of times we can spend a lot of time talking about what it means to become a Christian. In our passage today, it talks about what does it mean to be a Christian. So listen closely uh, this morning and, and hear what it means to truly follow Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus, you're not a Christian, I am so glad you are here. Any Sunday you come is a good Sunday to come. But every once in a while it feels like an especially good Sunday. And I think today is one of those days because we're essentially looking at Christianity 101. The book of Mark that we're studying is one of four Gospels. Uh, that's the, the genre of Scripture that we find ourselves in. They're written accounts from the first century that are recorded by people who knew Jesus or who were, who were part of his immediate circle. This, the Bible, is our, it's our primary source. And so if you have questions about Christianity, if you want to explore what it means to be a Christian, there's no better place you can go than to God's word, to go to the Bible. And this morning we find this passage where Jesus calls his first disciples. Now a disciple is not a particularly religious distinction, although that's the way we use it a lot today. It really just means a follower or a student. Maybe the best word would actually be like an apprentice. For someone to be a disciple is to be an apprentice. And so if you have questions about anything you hear this morning, if you hear new things or you hear things in different ways, don't leave without asking those questions. There's lots of people in the room who would be glad to talk to you 
about the questions you might have, and we have some great resources on the table over there that I would encourage you to take a look at uh, as you seek to find answers to those questions. Don't settle for unknowns. Don't settle for insecurity. But friends, would you join me in standing as you're able as I read our passage this morning? This is God's word for us today. Can you believe that? This is God's word. Let's hear it from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. The big idea from our passage this morning is to be a disciple of Jesus is to give up everything and follow him. To be a disciple of Jesus is to give up everything and follow him. What do you make of that statement this morning? Does that sound a bit extreme to you? What would it mean for you today if it were true? Well, to understand what it means to truly follow Jesus, we first need to understand what his message is. And so that's our first question that we'll be asking this morning. What is Jesus' message? We find this right away in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming, here it is, the gospel of God. The word gospel, as we've talked about, literally means good news. It's, it's a proclamation of good news, of good tidings. And so Jesus' message is simply the good news of God. And we see right away as, as his public ministry launches here, after he's been affirmed by John the Baptist, after he's been baptized and affirmed by God himself, Jesus goes and he proclaims the good news of God. And we see right away that the good news cuts through bad news. The good news cuts through bad news. Because already at this stage in the gospel, we see that it's not just all happy clappy Jesus is here. Uh, that's true. But what do we see at, right at the beginning of verse 14? Mark doesn't give a lot of description here. He's going to get to it later. But he says, now after John was arrested... That's sort of the stage that's set now for Jesus' ministry to begin. John was the forerunner of Jesus. And, and so right away, the stage is set to understand that the world is broken. That the one who God had called to be the forerunner of Jesus, to, to lay the foundation, to proclaim, here comes the king, is arrested. And so we see right away that the world is opposed to this message. I mean, there were some people that were seriously opposed to this message. They were threatened so much that, spoiler alert, this would lead to John's death. And this becomes a foreshadowing and a bit of a foretaste of understanding Jesus' own arc of ministry. Because you're going to see there are some who accept Jesus, but there's others who very obviously reject 
Jesus. Violently. This also sets the stage to understand that those who stand with Jesus will face consequences. There is good news, but it cuts through a world of bad news. That's how it's always been. That's how it always will be on this side of heaven. But it's against this bleak and black backdrop of brokenness and injustice that the gospel cuts through. It shines even brighter. And so what is this good news, right? We're talking about the good news of God. What is this good news? Well, we get a very compressed statement here in the beginning of our passage, yet very loaded description in verse 15. This is Jesus saying, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Let's look at just that phrase. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, God's people have been waiting for a savior. They've been waiting for the Christ, the Messiah, this anointed one, the promised king who would come to restore God's kingdom here on earth. The Bible says that we were made in the image of God. Every single person in this room, every single person who's ever existed, were made in the image of God. And we were made to know God, to live under his rule and reign. The problem is that each and every one of us in this room, each and every one of us who have ever existed, have destroyed that relationship. We've severed that relationship, that right relationship to be under God, our king, our ruler, our creator. We've broken that because of our sin and our rebellion. We've done this by rejecting God. We've done this by ignoring God in the world that he created. We've usurped his kingship. But what God did right from the very beginning, as soon as humanity fell into sin, and falling feels, sounds like an accident. It's willful rebellion. As soon as humanity willfully rebelled, God didn't just wipe humanity off the face of the earth. He made a promise that one day one would come. One day there would be this promised king who would rule perfectly, righteously, justly, who would defeat evil, who would restore this relationship between God and humanity. This is the one that God's people have been, been waiting for for a millennia. And time and time again, we see that God's people fail. They just fall deeper and deeper into this spiral of sin and rebellion. But time and time again, God makes promises and keeps promises in moving this mission forward, in moving his plans forward, in seeing the fulfillment of these promises come closer and closer and closer uh, to restore all things the way they were meant to be. As you read through the Old Testament, it almost feels like we can think of a rocket ship getting ready to launch, and there's this the epic countdown, 10, 9, 8, 7, right? You can feel the anticipation. That's kind of what's happening all through the Old Testament. They're waiting for this promised one to come. And as the Old Testament comes to a close, we see the the final book in our English Bibles, the prophet Malachi, points to this Elijah figure. We looked at this last week. Points to this Elijah figure in chapters 3 and 4 of one who would come and make a way for the Messiah, who would make a way for God's chosen king to come. And if we were writing this story, if we thought it was fiction somehow, we would probably say, well, Malachi would make this proclamation, and then all of a sudden, John the Baptist, this Elijah figure, would show up and say, here comes Jesus. 
But what we see is as this countdown happens, it's like there's this really long pause between uh, one and liftoff. There's 400 years of silence where there's no prophecy. There's, there's just this waiting. When will our Messiah come? When will this king come to restore humanity to God? And it's that, it's that bleak backdrop of silence and continued spiraling to sin that Jesus comes onto the scene, that we have liftoff. And this is what Mark is saying here when he's saying, the time is fulfilled. This is Jesus' message. He's saying, the time is fulfilled. I am here. Jesus, God's only son, God's chosen king, arrives to restore the kingdom of God. He was awaited by the prophets. He was affirmed by John the Baptist. He was attested to by God himself. And Jesus, the king that God's people have been waiting for, is here. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's not like God's kingdom didn't exist before Jesus' arrival, but in a new and better way, God's kingdom, uh, when Jesus comes, it ushers in this new era of God's kingdom, God's kingdom on a deeper level. This is an announcement of God's rule. It's an announcement of God's judgment. It's an announcement of restoration. Something big was happening. All of these things would be happening because Jesus is here. And this is good news. This is the good news of God. It's the good news, right? Well, this is either really good news or really troubling news. Because if Jesus is God's chosen king who's come to restore God's kingdom with us under his reign, how we view this news depends very much on how we view the king. It depends very much on how the king views us. I heard one pastor give a helpful analogy of imagine you're a child and uh, your babysitter, you're, you're being babysat, and your babysitter says, your parents are home. They just pulled into the driveway. That might be either very good news or very bad news, depending on how you were acting in that moment. And so this is kind of true what's happening here. Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Except there's a difference in the way that we think of this babysitting analogy in this. Because the good news is that Jesus did not come to say the, king, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Get your act together before it's too late. That's a false gospel that we often fall for. Many times throughout the week. That's where my mind goes. I need to just get my act together. I need to be just good enough. I need to raise myself to the level so that you know, I'll just be seen in good enough favor by the king that I won't just be banished from the kingdom. But that's not good news because none of us can do that. What Jesus says is he gives a much better way to respond to this good news and the, the way we respond is what makes this news good. The news is much better than get your act together. And so that leads us to our second question this morning. What is the right response to Jesus? If Jesus' message is the good news of God, that the time is fulfilled, the countdown has happened, the kingdom of God is at hand, what is the right response to Jesus, to this king? 
Now, you don't need to be a scholar to discern the very clear application here. Okay? You're not going to find many Sundays with clearer application. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the response. Repent and believe the gospel. First, repent. Well, what does repent mean? I think sometimes we can downplay the word repent to just saying, I'm sorry. It is that, but it's so much more. The word repent literally means to turn. It's decisive turning. It's to turn away from something. Now, what is that turn away from? Well, it's to turn away from that rebellion. It's to turn away from that sin. The call to repent is to turn from the ways where we reject and ignore God. It's to turn from the ways where we do exactly what God tells us not to do and we fail to do exactly what he tells us to do. At the core of all of our sins, every single sin, you can do an audit of yourself, of how you've acted, maybe even this morning or this week. At the core of all our sins, we find pride. We elevate ourselves to seek pleasure, to seek comfort, to seek, uh, to seek security, to seek power. We seek control. We do this in the way that we live, the way that we treat others. What sin looks most like is us just trying to make ourselves king or us to make ourselves queen. What we do when we sin is we declare our own supposed kingdom's interests. We live like we are Lord. And it doesn't take long to see how that if, if I'm a king, right, if I'm the king of the world in my mind and you're the king of your world and you're the queen of your world, that things start to spiral pretty quick. There are too many chefs in the kitchen, so to speak. We can see how if we all try to rule, if we all try to be the God of our own kingdom, our lives, uh, the world around us falls into disarray. More than disarray, it turns into chaos. This is not God's good design. We were meant to have a Lord, not be the Lord. And so as Jesus comes in to usher in God's kingdom, what does he say? He says, repent. Turn away from that foolish and futile rebellion. Turn away. Repent. We see that's not the only thing he says, though. He says, repent and believe. So it's not only a turn away, it's a turn to. Repent and believe the gospel. If repentance is to turn away from sin, belief is to turn to something, and not just to turn simply to a set of facts. That's how we might think of believing in something. There's a lot of things I believe in. That's not what this is talking about. It's saying to turn to the good news, to really trust in it. Now, what is this good news? Well, the good news is what Jesus came to proclaim. The good news is Jesus himself. That the way Jesus came to restore humanity was not in the way we might expect. It was not in, certainly not in the way that God's people uh, expected. They, many people were expecting this conquering ruler. That this person would come in and overthrow the Roman government and would take care of everything. He would come in in power and he would punish those who have rebelled against him and who have uh, not faithfully honored him as king. 
Now, if that were the case, there would be no one to be under God's rule. None of us would exist under that kind of weight because each and every one of us have sinned. Every human who has ever lived has fallen short of the glory of God. That is except for Jesus himself. And so what God does is he sends his own son, Jesus, into the world, not to come as this dominating political figure, not as one who came to be served, but one who came to serve. Jesus came to live a sinless life, yet die the death that you and I deserve for our rebellion. Every single one of our sins, every failing would fall completely on Jesus. He came so that he would take the place of all who would repent, turning away from their sin, and turn to him in faith. He died so that we might live. But Jesus came that he might have victory over sin and death. He didn't stay dead. He was raised for our justification. God's power, of course, is demonstrated in Jesus' defeat over death. But Jesus' rising from the dead demonstrates that the wrath of God is satisfied. And so the kingdom of God coming should be, by our very nature, bad news for us. Because this king is coming that we are just living in willful rebellion under. Whether you accept that or not, or agree that or not, you stand shoulder to shoulder with me as a rebel against a holy God. But through what Jesus has done, the fact that the, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, can be the best news in the world. Because of what Jesus has done, we can be saved. Because of what Jesus has done, we don't even have to just be saved and then live as pardoned criminals, kind of banished into the wilderness that, that God always kind of holds something over us. is like, you rebelled against me. I'll, I'll remember that. I'll give you a bit of a blank. You know, you can do your thing. But I'll re- no, that's not... That's not good news. I mean, that'd be more than we deserve, but that's still not the good news. The good news is that God removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. The good news is a million times better than simply get our act together or simply be a pardoned criminal. Jesus stood in our place so that the full weight of all of our wickedness, all of our sin would fall completely on him. And then when God looks at us then, if we repent turn away from our sin, and turn to Jesus in faith, we would receive his perfection. We would be credited with his righteousness. This is why the news is so, so good. Now, this does not mean on this side of heaven we'll be sinless, but what it does mean is that in God's eyes, our sin is paid for past, present, and future. The slate is wiped clean. And so we can joyfully be a part of God's kingdom. Something that we could never even fathom doing on our own merit. Because of his mercy in Christ, we can be made right with God. And so repent and believe the gospel. That is a right response to Jesus. But even in this, we can make a mistake in thinking that this repentance and belief is simply praying a one-time prayer and getting this get-out-of-jail-free card. 
We see that repentance and belief cannot be a one-time act. To be a disciple of Jesus, to rightly respond to Jesus, is to give up everything and follow him. It's to give up your sin. That's what we mean by repenting. It's to give up trusting in other things. We turn to other things and look for them to be our savior. But what Jesus says here is we need to believe the gospel. We need to believe this good news. We need to turn to him. And then don't miss this. We need to repent, believe, and we need to follow. Right in the very name Christian, by uh, the very definition of what we call ourselves, is a description of what it means to be a Christian. It's to be a Christ follower. That alone should obliterate the false message that we are a Christian somehow because we are born in a certain country or because we have Christian parents or because uh, you generally live with pretty good manners or morals, at least when you're in public. If by God's grace you have received this free gift that you don't deserve, if he has called you to repentance and belief, and then you live that life following Jesus as your Lord, not only your Savior, but Savior and Lord, then you are a Christian. Christianity is discipleship. It is an apprenticeship. It's continual repentance and belief. It is following. And we see this as Jesus calls his first disciples in verse 16 through 20. Again, it says, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired servants and followed him. Okay, what do we see here about following? What do we see here? Well, I think we see at least six things. This is, I'm going to move quickly. See everyone wince, like, oh, what time is it? Six more things? Okay, six things. We're going to move quickly. First, we see initiative. Jesus takes the initiative. This would have been highly unusual for a religious leader, for a rabbi, or literally a teacher to, to go and pursue their own disciples would be unheard of. Uh, the way it worked then is it was up to the disciples to pursue a rabbi, to pursue this teacher, and then prove themselves worthy of this apprenticeship. Not so with Jesus. Jesus takes the initiative in calling those who will, who will follow him. The same is true for us today. Second, in that initiative, we see grace. We see initiative and we see grace. Jesus calls ordinary people. We see throughout his ministry, he calls all kinds of people. He doesn't let racial lines stand in the way. He doesn't let uh, economic, social standing things stand in the way. He calls all kinds of people. And right here, he calls fishermen. Now, we can sometimes get this wrong and like reduce fishermen to something that they're not. They're kind of like as vanilla as it gets. Like they're just kind of middle of the road, ordinary guys. They're hard workers. They've got their own business. We see that they've got hired servants. Uh, so it's not like they're just like the scum of the earth, but they're certainly not the elite. They're just kind of smack dab in the middle of society. But this is such a, a good message for us of understanding Jesus's grace because he doesn't beeline it for Jerusalem and recruit the greatest of the great. He doesn't call the religious elites or the greatest minds to follow him. He goes to Galilee and he calls a bunch of fishermen. It's just like it doesn't get more ordinary than that. And that 
is extraordinary. Because he takes initiative, and this models his, his grace. He goes to Galilee. He calls these fishermen. This is what Jesus does. It's all grace. And so I have bad news for you and good news for you today. You are likely very ordinary. We are all kind of in that realm, right? And the good news is we see this spectrum grow as Jesus' ministry goes. He calls the people who, who would be the scum of the earth by the world's standards. And he calls people who maybe had a high position uh, from a society point of view. He, he calls this entire wide spectrum. But the good news for us this morning is Jesus demonstrates grace in calling very ordinary people to be part of his extraordinary mission. Third, we see faith. These guys live it. They actually follow him. They don't try to meet him halfway. I could imagine how we would uh, uh, think through how we might describe this if it was us a lot of the time. Yeah, uh, I'll follow you metaphorically, but we're going to stay here. You know, I can't leave my boat. Uh, but we'll support you, you know, if, if time comes when you need support, we'll do that. Maybe I'll even etch or carve Team Jesus in the side of my fishing boat, right? They don't try to meet him halfway and compromise that this is what it looks like to follow him. They actually follow him, right? It can sound a little bit crazy to just drop everything and follow, and it is. This is radical discipleship. Now, in John's gospel, we get a little bit, again, we know Mark, the way Mark writes is just like punchy, punchy, I'm not going to waste words. And so, in John's gospel, we get a little bit more light shed on this, to the fact that understanding these disciples, these first disciples, actually knew who Jesus was. Uh, they were, uh, they knew, they were following John the Baptist, and they, they had obviously, as God's people, they'd been awaiting this Messiah to come. And so, the application here is not just follow anyone. Right? If you're up fishing at the cottage this summer and some guy kind of strolls along the shore and says, hey, follow me, uh, don't do that. Don't go with him. Okay? Public safety announcement. Don't follow that guy. Okay? Put a pin in that. Remember that. Don't go with him. But these guys followed John the Baptist. These guys knew they were waiting for this king. They were waiting for this Messiah. And so I don't say that to downplay the radicalness of this discipleship. But when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, follow me. They say, yeah, we're going to go. We see faith. They leave their nets. They leave their families. They leave it all to follow him. Fourth, we see community. Jesus calls together a group of people. One scholar writes, it's not an exaggeration to say that the seeds of the Christian church originated in the first act of Jesus' public ministry in which he called together four fishermen into community with himself. God has given us a disciple-making strategy. We don't need to reinvent the wheel, and that strategy is called... The church, if you are given a lighter and a bunch of sticks and you're commissioned to, you know, warm up the campsite or maybe make something that you can cook food over, you don't just light all the sticks on fire and then spread them around the campsite to try to, you know, share the wealth. Those sticks, they're going to burn out. How would you do it? You'd put them all together. You'd bundle them together. And in that way, they're going to burn hotter and brighter and for longer. And they'll actually keep the other ones lit, maybe when one is struggling. That's like the Christian life. That's the way God made us to be in community. And we see this all throughout Scripture. And here we see this just trickled in again. That the call to follow Jesus is not just to be a person, it's to be a people. The Bible talks about us being stones in a structure, uh, about being parts of a body, about being members of a family. 
Fifth, we see growth. Jesus calls them to follow. They are to follow, to watch, and to learn. What does he tell them in this little kind of mini commission that happens here? He says that they will become fishers of men. They will become fishers of men. It's not like he's holding interviews and he's like, you know who I need? I need fishermen. Oh, you're a fisherman? Oh, well, you're qualified. You must be a great, you know, fisher of men. I mean, there's a level of that. He's using kind of a play on words, but there's so much more here. He's saying that they will become something. He's not calling them because they've already attained something. He's saying, you will become what I need you to be. This implies growth. So how do we grow? Well, we could go on a long list, right? With being a part of a church, being in discipling relationships, gathering to pray with other Christians, praying in private, studying the Bible. Most of us agree that disciples should be growing. But too many are like I was for much of my discipleship, where I was wondering, why am I not growing? And I was neglecting everything explicit that God had said, here's what you need to do to grow. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be called to something, but also to be becoming something. And sixth, we see that they are to become disciple makers. They are to grow and they are to go. They will become fishers of men. Following Jesus involves taking up the mission of Jesus. Like fishing, we are called to do the strenuous work of making disciples. This requires persistence, often with little or nothing to show for it. This requires following the footsteps of those that have gone before them in calling sinners to repentance and belief. And that's following in the footsteps here of John and Jesus, who very obviously we find face persecution for these efforts. So how could these initial disciples say that they follow Jesus if they blatantly don't do what he does? Namely, what's built right into this initial call and commission and built right in explicitly to the Great Commission. Right? If these are the first and last words that Jesus gave to his followers, it's to make disciples. So what do you make of all of this? I mean, really think about that. What do you, sitting in this likely not super comfortable chair right now in Breslau today, make of this? What does this mean for you today? To be a disciple of Jesus means to give up everything to follow him. What is that for you today? Maybe you're here and you know you are standing in rebellion against the king. If so, give up your sin. Repent and believe the good news that your sin can be paid for. Give up believing in yourself or your job or putting your hope in your next vacation and believe in the one that offers real hope. Christian, are you holding back or refusing to let go of fully following Jesus? Maybe you're wanting to follow him, but you're dragging that net with you. We are so quick to take even good things and lift them up to be God things. Our careers, our families, our hobbies, these are good things but we can so easily elevate them to become our functional saviors, things that we refuse to let go of. And to be clear, we we don't have to caricaturize this. It's not like the disciples burn their boats, right? We get many impressions later through the Gospels that they're maybe still involved in this fishing business, 
right? So we don't have to, to, to overswing the pendulum. Uh, following Jesus does not demand that today you quit your job and abandon your family and live like a monk in the woods. But it does demand that you put all of these things under the lordship of Christ. We are good at filling in all the qualifiers for this, right? You know, I'm thinking, well, maybe God's calling you to the other side of the world, but then we're good at filling in that next part and saying, but, but maybe he's not, right? Maybe he's not calling me to that kind of radical discipleship. I'll let you fill in all the qualifiers yourself because maybe God is calling you to something. Maybe you know what that is. Maybe you don't know what that is. But what I can guarantee is he is calling you to follow him. He is calling you to, whether that be crossing an ocean, crossing your street, or crossing your living room, he's calling you to make disciples. He's calling you to repent, believe, and follow. And I don't say this to just lob out, you know, a classic, oh man, feel guilty, go home, do nothing type sermon application. I tell you this because Jesus, the Son of God, the promised King, is inviting you to be a part of his mission. And he promises that he will be with you always, even to the end of the age. He does the heavy lifting, but he's saying, come on, follow me. That's good news. Let's not dare to live content with being recipients of this grace, yet hoard it, afraid of the cost. Now, stories of those that have gone before us can be instrumental in our own discipleship. And so what I want to do today is close by telling you the story of a woman named Lilius Trotter. If that name means nothing to you, it meant nothing to me before our Wednesday prayer time when Ivan told me of this remarkable woman. Lilius was born in 1853 to a wealthy family in England. Even at a young age, she was a gifted artist. And at one point, her mother, like proud and brave mothers do, gathered up some of her drawings and sent them off to get them in the hands of famous artist and art critic uh, John Ruskin. That might be a more familiar name to you. Now, Ruskin was so impressed that he took her on actually as a student. And at one point, he said, in his estimation, she could one day be England's greatest living painter. The problem was that Lilius's love for art, as that increased, so did her love for God and her love for those that are less fortunate than her. And so what she began to do is she started to give up more and more of her extra time to do the dangerous work of wandering London streets at night and finding prostitutes that she could help feed and get employment and get off the streets. And this was majorly frowned upon for a woman of her status to go and do. And by multiple accounts, she was a small person. She was physically weak. But she didn't let that stop her burden to love people with Jesus' love. And so she continued to pursue her art uh, and serve those around her. But she became increasingly convicted that she needs to be helping more and more people. She needs to be sharing the gospel with more and more people. And this was a crisis for her. On one side was a life of ease that was tracking towards, really, a life of fame and fortune. And on the other side, she felt very clearly that God was calling her to something else. Her mentor and friend, Ruskin, strongly encouraged her to continue in art and actually discouraged her from these dangerous acts of service. 
but she eventually wrote in her diary, I see as clear as daylight now, I cannot give myself to painting in the way he means and continue to still seek first the kingdom of God. So she came to this crossroads. She felt compelled to follow God, even at great expense to her. And at one point, she was in this worship service, and someone asked, is there anyone in this room who God is calling to North Africa? And immediately, without hesitation, she stood up and said, it's me. And so she pursued missions agencies to go to North Africa. But she was so small and weak that she actually got rejected by the missions agencies. But she didn't let that stop her. She knew this is what God was calling her to do. And so she and two friends packed up and went to Algeria on their own. Now, Lilius never married. She would spend the rest of the next 40 years of her life until her death in 1928, serving the forgotten and the rejected of the world in Algeria, sharing the gospel with anyone that she could. She gave up fame for obscurity. She gave up comfort for danger. She gave up earthly prosperity for persecution. All so that she could devote her life to showing and sharing the love of Jesus Christ. She was able to make disciples who understood the cost of following Jesus. One of the things that she would write in her diary regularly is how heartbroken she was because every convert she was making would get murdered for becoming a Christian. And this was a real internal struggle for her, but there's at one point in her diaries that then that changes and she realizes, I have the privilege of sharing with these people the hope of the gospel, eternity of peace with God. And now they stand there with their unfading crown of glory. She understood the cost of discipleship for herself and the cost of being a fisher of men. And so Lilius reminds us of the cost of following Christ. That to give up everything, even one's life, was worth it to receive this unfading crown of glory. Her life demonstrates that we shouldn't just ask the question, how do I become a Christian? Her life demonstrates that we all need to ask ourselves the question this morning, what does it mean to be a Christian? To be a disciple of Jesus is to give up everything and follow him. Does that sound extreme to you? It sounds extreme to me, but it's good news. As Jim Elliott, another who gave up his life, literally dying trying to share the gospel with those who had never heard it, famously said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Did you catch that? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. May we all be willing to give up what we cannot keep to gain what we cannot lose in following Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we are struck by the thought that we are invited in that we can hear this call to follow Jesus. But God, it's only by your help that we can repent, that we can believe, and that we can follow. And so help us do that today. Wherever we are on that spectrum, Lord, give us wisdom. Give us what we need to follow Jesus fully. 
to give up everything to follow him. It's in our Savior, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.